Amen. Please be seated. Please take out the insert in your bulletin. This has a few passages there printed for you. I will, for these four weeks, bring you four meditations. They're sermons. They just have a a little bit of a different structure than you're used to hearing from me. This won't be our normal exposition through 2 Corinthians during this time of Advent. It's a great time for us to reflect upon God's fulfilled promises to us in Christ. The Bible is the story of God's unfolding promise of redemption. Uh, There are many themes that you can trace in the Scripture, but redemption is the key theme that you will see, redemption in Christ. And so I will take uh, four different sermons to explain or reflect upon that reality. Uh, And I'm going to pick four people who are in the line of Christ. There are two genealogies of Jesus listed in the New Testament. Luke and Matthew have them. Uh, One comes more from the angle of Mary's side of the family, the other from Joseph's. They don't include necessarily every person. Uh, Antiquity uh, doesn't often list every person in a genealogy, but they are key figures, and you can see as you put them together how from Adam all the way to Jesus, uh, the line that the Lord God works providentially to bring Messiah. But I want to pick Uh, four in particular, four figures, and you will find them in the first reading. So follow as I read Luke 3. Now it's disjointed because I just take out the verses that are specific to the people I want to focus on for these weeks, and then I'll go to another passage as well. Follow as I read, though, these verses from the genealogy in Luke 3. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. Being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, then, verse 31, the son of Melia, the son of Mena, the son of Mathatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, then down to verse 38, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. You could see the four figures I want to focus upon together. First, we'll go in chronological order, so backwards from this text. Adam today, the connection between Adam and Jesus, then Abraham and Jesus, then David and Jesus, and then finally Joseph and Mary as well and Jesus. So these four figures and the passages around them, what we learn in the Bible about these people, will connect with Jesus and hopefully, by God's grace, gain a greater appreciation for what God has done in working redemption over the course of thousands of years. Uh, we think of these figures as appearing close together in stories, but they're separated by thousands of years in some cases, centuries for sure. Yet God consistently maintains his promise to bring Messiah. That's what we celebrate at Advent, the bringing of Messiah. Now, there is another passage I want us to take a cue from to show how important this provision of God is, this promise-keeping of God. It's in the book of Acts. That's the next passage on your outline. This is Luke writing. He wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, which tells the story of the apostles after Jesus rises again in the beginning of uh, the church after Christ's resurrection, Uh, the time of Paul, the new apostle to the group who uh, brings uh, new churches to bear because of God's grace and his work and, and work through Paul. And you have this passage that says something I think really uh, gives us direction for our 
meditations over this Advent season. Follow as I read God's word in Acts 13, starting there at verse 21. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. This should be really in our minds because Pastor Nathan has just finished this section of 1 Samuel. Verse 22. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Verse 23. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Please bow with me as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we know that your word is your accounting of your plan for redemption. It's your accounting of your outworking of redemption through Christ. Lord, as we study these people, I pray that you give us a new appreciation for your promise-keeping. Lord, that you have brought Jesus as you promised. He has come. He's lived. He's died. He's been raised again. He is seated at your right hand. And we look for the day that he will come again. Father, I pray that we would be refreshed, refilled, and encouraged, being reminded of what you have worked out. And Lord, we are short-sighted and can be sometimes lured into thinking uh, what's coming tomorrow or next month, and if it doesn't happen right then, we think it's not happening, or we think you may be unfaithful, we may not say it out loud, but we might feel it. Lord, give us a sense of time, give us a sense of your working, and a sense of the surety of your plan coming to pass. Give us a sense of celebration that Jesus has come, he's paid for our sins, and now we live in you, we live in Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Today, I would like us to consider the first person in the line of Christ, the most obvious, maybe, the first human being. I want to state very clearly, these are historic figures. These are not mythological people made up to teach stories. These are people who lived, and Adam is the first human being to ever live. We know this because the Word of God tells us this. And we can see in Adam answers to questions we're always asking. If you're like me even though you may know the answer biblically, whenever you see something happen in the world, and we've had many events in the last week call our attention to base questions, we see things happen, we wonder, why do people do the things they do? Why are we like we seem to be? It's that origin question that is found, uh, the answer is found here in the person of Adam and in the scripture's record of Adam, and then the outworking of everything we see thereafter. It's really a basic question of life that is important for everybody to grasp in order to appreciate the world they live in, meaning to understand it, to be able to start to process events that happen. And I think for Christians who've been studying the Bible for a while, they take it for granted and they forget that most people in the world, they don't have a grasp on uh, origins or what Adam means to the rest of us and why it is so impacting on a daily basis. I mean, there's not a day that goes by that you are not impacted in some way by what happened with Adam, as recorded by the Bible. You know, one of my favorite places to travel in this country is Colorado. I love the mountains, and I like specifically the Sangre de Cristo Mountains. It's a little bit away from the more touristy areas of 
Colorado, and it's a mountain range that has several 14, uh, 14ers in it, you know, mountains over 14,000 feet. It's a beautiful range, uh, Sangre de Cristo, the blood of Christ. It's named after uh, those who first found it and their convictions about God. And I enjoy going there for times of refreshment and walking at eight or 9,000 feet along the trail that goes around this mountain range. You still have four or 5,000 feet above you to see, and there are a series of creeks that you walk over. And these creeks have pure water in them. You could stick your hand in and drink the water. And in the spring, it just flows full. And the creeks go into streams, and the streams go into rivers. And that water, you could just grab a glass and drink right out of it. And it comes from those snow-capped mountains that are happening right now as the, the ice and snow form at the top. And then in the spring, it starts to melt and go down in these creeks. And the reason the water is so pure when you stick your hand in it, in one of those trails, is because the headwaters are pure and clean. It comes from cleanness, and it goes down and flows as cleanness. And that is the way mankind was originally created. The headwaters were clean. Uh, Innocence, you might say, without corruption. But you know what happened. And Adam is the figure that we see so clearly shown to us in Scripture. That first person who started this way, but then sinned. And then was corrupted, and corruption entered, and sin entered, and then misery entered, and death entered. These things all came in because of the sin of Adam. He's a key figure. You can't understand humanity without understanding this. He's the headwaters. He's the headwaters that you and I all come from. Though it was him, you might say it wasn't us, it was. We were in Adam. Uh, God clearly shows us in the Bible to be in Adam when he sinned. Not just the effects of what he did having effect on us, but representing us as our federal head. Uh, Now this comes to bless us when we can then have we can be placed in Christ, the second Adam, hit our federal head in that respect. But it stings at the fall, and it affects every one of us. And the headwaters are corrupted. So there's no pure water that can come from corrupt headwaters. And that's all of us. And that's the reality of humankind. That's our condition. It's not as the big lie goes that people are basically good. You know, most uh, stories or movies today, you know, that's the underlying theme, that eventually man will do the right thing and get himself out. He's basically good. But nothing could be further from reality. Nothing could be further from biblical truth. And we see it in the person of Adam. And you have to start with Adam to, fur- to fully appreciate what redemption means. You have to start with creation and what happened in that fall of Adam to fully grasp and really celebrate what it means that Jesus has come to save us from our sins. I want us to consider the connection between Adam, the first human being to ever live, and Jesus Christ. Adam, as the headwaters of humanity, was our representative. He was the first person representing all of us. And you can read in the account in Genesis, when man fell, it was after God had told Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree. He said if they ate of the tree that they would die. Now what was meant by this, as we see played out, is that man is a, a body and a soul, a nexus between the two. That's how we're created. That's how we'll live forever in the eternal state, body and soul. By dying, God was saying that your soul would die and your body would follow suit. That's what we see demonstrated. He doesn't say that you'll get sick if you disobey me and sin. It doesn't say you'll get injured or it'll harm you or it'll hinder you in some way. He says you will surely die. We know this to be the state of mankind without Christ because it says in Ephesians, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. It doesn't say we're corrupted in our trespasses and sins. We're dead, utterly dead, flatlined. 
He's our representative. And we know he is responsible for what he did. And we know he represents us on the basis of God's confrontation in Genesis 3. Listen to what God says to Adam. In Genesis 3, verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And the man responded, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. You can see the shame and the guilt that Adam has after sinning. You could also notice that God goes to the man first as the representative. He is the representative of all of us, Eve included. God then responds, Who told you that you were naked? Now, it's not that God doesn't know this. This is just the process of revelation that God goes through to demonstrate what has happened. He says, or God continues, Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? In immediately showing the impact of the fall, the impact of sin, immediately demonstrating it, listen to the answer that Adam gives. Not, yes, I have sinned and I repent. The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. The immediate result of the fall is self-preservation and selfishness and excuses. Is that not true of mankind? Is that not true of humanity? Is that true of everything you see? Every time you watch a news broadcast of some terrible thing that happens, you hear excuses. You hear blame shifting. You hear reasons for why this happened, and it's never my sin caused this. But the reality of what the Bible teaches us is that it, that's what causes it. It's, it's original sin, and then all its complex tentacles that go out into uh, history and in mankind and every one of us that plays into this, this desperate state that we find ourselves in. And we read when we went through our affirmation of faith, uh, the effects of the fall that we fell into is sin and misery. Sin begets misery, and misery leads to death. They always go together. Sin always goes together with death. That's its intended result. That's where it leads. That's the curse. And that's true. It came from Adam. We know that God views Adam as our representative. When we read in 1 Corinthians 15, that great passage about the resurrection of Jesus, the second Adam, but the first Adam represented us. In 1 Corinthians 15, 21, for as by a man came death. Death came by a man, and the man is Adam. It says in verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 15, For as in Adam all die. No one escapes. He represented every person, every human being. In Romans 5, a a very legal explanation of justification, how we could be made right with God, the book plays that out for us. And we see how in legal terms we were represented by Adam in that garden. Now that helps again for us to appreciate how we're represented by Christ and can be represented by Jesus. But in Romans 5, we see with no question that Adam is our representative. He's not just a figure. He's not just a moral person, figure, myth, or story people tell to to explain how things are. He was our actual representative. It says in Romans 5, 12, Through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin. In Romans 5, 15, By the one man's offense many died. Romans 5.18, through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. 
Romans 5, verse 19, by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. I suppose one reaction a person could have to hearing this is saying, I don't believe that. He can't, I'm not responsible for what he did. And I think people, when they hear this, at least if they're not in Christ, if they, they don't believe the revelation that God has given his word, that might be the, the tendency to say, that's not fair. Now, even if you didn't believe that, though, what have you done in this life that would commend yourself to God? Do you not draw connection with the very sin that Adam committed? Can you not see how guilty you are? But the fact is, we were in Adam. He was our representative. And from Adam, those headwaters produce a corruption. Adam failed, and so came death. And really, to be accurate, to say it the way the catechism laid it out, sin and misery and death. Misery, what a terrible word. I mean, the word miserable. And that's really the, the human condition in Adam is misery. It's still difficult when we're in Christ. Trials and afflictions are still real. We just gain an entirely new perspective that brings redemption to the misery of this life. And ultimate redemption as this life goes, passes and it goes on to glory. And so for the person in Christ, not in Adam any longer, a new perspective is born. And we'll see that. That's the connection. That's how we understand the glory of Christ coming. It's got to be seen in light of Adam. But with Adam, it's just misery. That's what this life brings, is unanswerable misery. You can't explain why one thing happens after another. There's no way to fit this. You can't plug it into a worldview. You can't process all the things, the bad things that happen if you just view it from the sinful side of things and how it's all fallen out from Adam. The reason for sickness and death on the earth is the sin of Adam, which is our sin too. Sin brings suffering and misery. Suffering, pain, death, and misery that we witness daily is because of the sin that entered through Adam. Sin brings sickness and disease and human weakness. Sickness and physical death entered through Adam's sin. We have to understand the significance of Adam in order to appreciate and comprehend the way things in the world are. You know, the reason for all the inhumanity that people have or practice towards one another is because of Adam's sin. And you can think of the worst possible despots in history. You know, the Hitlers of the world, the Idi Amins, the, the Stalins, uh, all these people that are responsible for tens of millions of people's deaths and suffering. But the reality is you don't have to look any farther than yourself to know what's in your heart and realize what potential lies there. And we're not safe to saying, yeah, well, that person's responsible for all that. Because you know personally that there is just, there's all sorts of wickedness that resides in us and can come out. And it only is maintained kept back because of God's restraining grace, and then the life of a believer, this transformation that he starts to work, but yet we still struggle, even as believers. The reason why we have all these, oppress- these oppressive things and difficult things that happen between people, the reason why we have corrupt governments, rebellious and riotous people, gangs, organized crime, dishonorable police, profane and immoral clergy people, it's all due to sin which entered humankind through Adam. And it will always be very complex, this side of glory. And I think it helps us to be realistic in understanding what the sin of Adam means to help us appreciate our life now and also long for what will come for us, uh, to us fully in Christ. It comes to us initially in taking our sins away and giving us relief from that knowledge of God's wrath. It's no longer upon us. But it also gives us something to look forward to when he comes again and makes all things right. When brings total justice to everything. 
But in the meantime, it's difficult, it's complex, and it's because of sin that we have to start there to understand it and appreciate it. And it's true personally. You know, every one of us, even as believers who are now in Christ, no longer in Adam, we still struggle this side of redemption. Paul himself, of all people in Romans 7, kind of lays out a little bit of a picture of what he struggles with personally. The Apostle Paul. He says in Romans 7, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, and that is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And he spends a whole half a chapter explaining how he's struggling with sin. You know, there's no real way to understand humanity or the human condition apart from what the Bible reveals about sin. One author I read noted how the Bible's depiction of reality and the layout of history for us really serves as a refutation to so much modern thought. That author says, the divine record of the fall of man is an unequivocal refutation of the Darwinian hypothesis of evolution. Instead of teaching that man began at the bottom of the moral ladder and is now slowly but surely climbing heavenwards, the Bible declares that man began at the top and fell to the bottom. A.W. Pink has uh, a great uh, thought about the fall and how we can think of it and how it helps us understand mankind. Pink says the divine record of the fall is the only possible explanation of the present condition of the human race. It alone accounts for the presence of evil in a world made by a beneficent and perfect creator. It affords the only adequate explanation for the universality of sin. Pink asks, why is it that the king's son in the palace and the saint's daughter in the cottage, in spite of every safeguard which human love and watchfulness can devise, manifest from their earliest days an unmistakable bias toward evil and tendency to sin. He asks further, why is it that sin is universal, that there is no empire, no nation, no family free from this awful disease? Reject the divine explanation, and no satisfactory answer is possible to these questions. Accept it, and we see that sin is universal, because all share a common ancestry. And that ancestry, of course, it begins with Adam. You can't understand what you see in the news each week without a proper understanding of sinful human nature. You can't understand your neighbor. You can't understand your children. You can't understand your college roommate, your coworker, your boss, or your spouse apart from an accurate understanding of sin and its effect on all of us. Now, I think when you have a true understanding of sin, it can seem real negative and down, but it gives you such a greater appreciation for the need for God's grace and a longing to see everybody receive that grace, even greater sinners than you. We're all such sinners that none of us deserve God's favor, but if we understand the truth about human condition in every one of us, when we see someone receive God's grace in Christ, it overwhelms us with joy and appreciation for the grace God's shown us. I think a proper view of sin and its effect will give us the right view of God's grace and salvation. Adam introduces this to us. You know, of all the verses that we recall during the Advent season, one that always hits me, because I'm, I'm thinking through this, these prophecies and these centuries that God 
uses to play out his plan of redemption. I mean, if you look at the figures we're studying, you have Adam happening, uh, living thousands of years before Abraham. We know Abraham lived around 2000 BC. That's 2000 years Abraham lived before Jesus. I think we think in our stories when we tell them to our children or maybe read them ourselves that they are more contemporary than that. But 2,000 years before Jesus comes Abraham. And then it's 1,000 years after Abraham lived. 1,000 years. I mean, that's a huge span of time. 1,000 years after Abraham before David lives. Do you ever know that there was 1,000 years between Father Abraham and King David? And then there is another 1,000 years between David and Jesus. The son of David is born 1,000 years after David lived. So God is working out this plan over all this time, and he's giving us the truth about humankind. We're reading God keeping his plan of redemption moving through the Bible story, but you keep seeing all these heinous things happening in history. The Bible depicts them, we know them to happen in history, and we know it's true. So one of the verses that I hope is most impacting to you is in Matthew one It It'll come up in some of our readings as we read. Listen to what it says. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Don't ever read that verse swiftly or superficially. For he will save his people from their sins. And a work of God in progress for thousands of years. Here is the connection between Adam and Jesus. Jesus came as the second Adam to rescue us from the curse of the first Adam. Romans 5, verse 15, the passage I have printed on your insert. It says, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. The connection is Jesus comes to do what Adam failed to do. And so become our representative, our righteous representative, the one who would make us right with God. So people are in two categories. They're they're still in Adam or they're in Christ. And if you're in Adam, you're in your trespasses and sins and you're dead. In Christ, you're made alive together with Christ. Uh, In Christ, of Christ, through Christ, from Christ, that constant phrase that Paul uses, the New Testament writers refer to, we're placed in Christ. That means we're no longer in Adam any longer. We're now in Christ. And that's why God accepts us. I don't care how many times we say this. This is stuff we want to hear over and over again to understand we're in Christ now. We were in Adam, now we're in Christ. That's the connection that we find made. And the beautiful, gracious point of this is that God comes to Adam and Eve, and in Genesis 3, immediately after they fall, God speaks the plan of redemption for the first time in the 15th verse of that chapter. When he says to the woman that I will put enmity between the seed, your seed and his seed, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and I will, by that seed, he says essentially, crush his head, but he, Satan, will bruise his heel. That's the first explanation of the gospel of God's grace, that I will put enmity. He doesn't say, I'll give you a chance to redeem yourself. I'll tell you what, I'll give you another opportunity, Adam and Eve. 
There is no opportunity. Death has come. The only way to bring life would be to have purity at the headwaters. And so I will put enmity, and I will bring one who will crush the serpent, the one who led you this way. Now in the process, his he will be bruised. He'll go to the cross. In Adam and in Jesus, the link there, you see Adam as the first person. And you see Jesus as the righteous second Adam. But you also see that it's through Adam that God still call, is going to make this change. He's going to interrupt, and he's going to bring Messiah. This gracious promise given to Adam and Eve, and now we receive as well. Jesus called the second Adam. What a great picture to teach us the significance of being in Christ, and I hope you recognize this. Jesus is called the second Adam in several places, but in 1 Corinthians 15, that great passage about the resurrection of Christ, Paul says, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. So death came, but now life is here in Christ. Death in Adam, life in Christ. For as in Adam all die, but also in Christ shall all be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15, 45, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Federalism, this idea that we are represented by Adam in the garden, is a, is, a, is a clearly biblical, legal explanation of how we're related together with Adam and how we're related together with Christ. James Boyce, in his commentary on this passage, says federalism is proof of God's grace. For while the failure of our first federal head brought terrible results, federalism was the only way it would later be possible for God to save us once we had sinned. We're placed in Christ by faith in him, and now we are legally bearers of the righteousness of Jesus. The headwaters that are pure now are what uh, we are under. How did Jesus succeed where Adam failed? Adam failed in his test with the devil. The devil tempted Adam with sovereignty. He said, you are God. You should be God. Don't let anybody tell you what to do. Just you. You're the one. You do what you want to do. Really, he was saying to serve him. Well, Jesus succeeded in the same trial. It was early in Jesus' ministry, just when he had become public. In Matthew 4, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Three times the devil contorts the word of God or the image of God or the character of God in Jesus' sight, tries to get Jesus to comply with him, to obey him. And every time Jesus refers to the true word of God and then thus resists the devil and passes the test that Adam and Eve did not. Adam and Eve knew the word of God, but when the devil told them something different, they believed the devil and not God's word. And they got all jumbled and mixed up and they fell. But the second Adam did what the first Adam failed to do. Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. What a different answer that would have been in the garden. Just think about that. Be gone, serpent. I shall worship only the true and living God. Only he will I serve, and he told me not to eat. But that isn't what happened. But it did happen several thousand years later on our behalf. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. 
Jesus passed the test that Adam failed because Jesus demonstrated obedience in this test. He was the worthy substitute for us. He could then go the next step that was required, that is to pay for the sins of Adam. He was worthy to be that sacrifice because of his obedience. Because of Jesus' righteousness, he could take our place on the cross and make payment. He succeeded, so came life. Romans 5, in its totality, shows beautifully and precisely how it is that Adam was our representative and now Jesus is by faith our representative. We are in Christ now. It's true that we're not free from the effects of sin in this life. And even after being made new creatures in Jesus, this time span in which we live is challenging. We'll struggle with sin until we're made completely new in glory. But that process is ongoing and God's working it and he's doing it even now. There's so many fruits of our new life in Christ. And describing this process of God making us more and more like Christ in this life even, our catechism says the work of God's free grace in describing sanctification, the process of making us more like Jesus. The catechism says it's the process whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more, see the process, more and more to die into sin and to live unto righteousness. Another author says well that it is a continuing change worked by God in us, freeing us from sinful habits and forming in us Christ-like affections, dispositions, and virtues. In other words, your disposition is different. You know what I'm talking about when you think of sin and corruption. You know it in your own life. But you also know that there's something that God has placed in you that really is affronted by it. It it does disgust you, even, even your own sins. And that's a disposition that God has placed in you in Christ. And because of the disposition, you start to see victories. They may be small ones at times. Maybe points of conviction that you've never had before. And God's starting to do his work. And if he could take thousands of years to enact the plan of redemption, he could take years to work this plan in your life. And we must be patient with the process. But he's working it, and he's changed our disposition. And it's different now. So we see things in the world differently through a different set of lenses. And that's helpful to understand that when we were in Adam, we would not have seen it that way. In Christ, now we see things differently. We're renewed. Sproul says it does not mean that sin is instantly eradicated, but it, also, it is also more than a counteraction in which sin is merely restrained or repressed without being progressively destroyed. Sanctification, he says, is a real transformation, not just the appearance of one. And that's what we're, in, that's what we're undergoing now. Boy, I think that's painful. I think that transformation is painful. I think if you're not experiencing some struggle and strain against sin in your life, something's not happening. Because it's, it's, it's a constant, I mean, God gives us periods of peace and rest with it. But that's because he's gracious. He doesn't open up all the doors of sin in our life that we could see. You're his child and he loves you and he gives it to you in the, the manner you can handle it. But that's the ongoing active work of God in your life now that you're in Christ. 2 Corinthians 3 that we studied not too many months ago says it so well. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same, same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. I think if one meditative point I would make to you about this Adam-Jesus connection, would be, it would be this. Have optimism or encouragement about the fact that you're not in Adam anymore. Know what it means to be in Adam. Know what that effect has. Understand the world through that lens. But give praise to God and gain a sense of joy from the, play, the fact that you've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness and death to the domain of Jesus, his son. You've been made alive together with Christ. 
And now your whole life is changed. Everything's different now. We're all different places. We're here to encourage each other, wherever that place may be. But now we're in Christ. Adam, at the headwaters of humanity. So we're corrupted by sin. I took that term from the life cycle of a river. The headwaters are the point of origin. It's a source. Usually they can be traced high into the mountains among the perennial snowfields. Peaks are also doused with rain that comes and works its way through the peaks and into the creeks, combined together into the, to the rivers. But our headwaters are corrupted, so we need new headwaters. God sent Christ for this, and we gain this new headwater when we place our trust and faith in Christ, the God-man. God sent to be our perfect sacrifice, who endured the cross for us, defeated death and was raised again, and is ruling at his Father's right hand. When we trust in him, when we rest in him, that's how we're in Christ now. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many die through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful for uh, your words, revelation to us. It's teaching. It gives us the truth. It tells us about reality. And Lord, we need this because it's difficult to interpret the world. It's difficult to interpret ourselves. It's hard to understand our friends. hard to understand the way people act. But Lord, your, your word reveals these things to us. It gives us understanding. And please grow us in grace and knowledge. Grow us in appreciation for Jesus, especially this Advent season as we consider these individuals who you providentially placed in history uh, to reveal more of your outworking of the plan of redemption. I pray that we would draw a connection to them and appreciation for them and what you have done through them. Lord, I thank you for your people here. I pray that this would be a season of real reflection upon your completed promises, your faithfulness, but also a season of celebration that our sins are forgiven, that Jesus has come and freed his people from their sins. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.